Hello, this is the A to Z of Tech podcast series and you've joined me, Louise, for this episode, which is V for video games. Um, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio for this discussion by two special guests. So we have Jeremy Dalton, who is Head of Metaverse Technologies here at PwC, and Tanya Laird, who most impressively is an inductee to the Women in Games Hall of Fame. So thank you both so much for joining us today for this episode. Um, I do have to admit before we start that I'm not actually a, a particularly big gamer. Um, I wasn't allowed a console when I was growing up, so I always think of things like um, Lemmings or Pac-Man when we're talking about video games, but uh, I'm sure this episode is going to be um, a really education for me. Um, so, Jeremy, if I might turn to you first with perhaps a fairly basic entry-level question. What, what is a video game? How do you define video game? Well, Tanya and I were having a really good discussion about this just now, and it's an interesting definition because at the end of the day, if you really draw back the definition of gaming and what is defined as a game, you can go in so many directions. Everybody, in a way, is a gamer of some sort. You have people who have played traditional video games, you know, electronically on screens. You've got people who get involved in live action role play and pretend to be different characters in a, in a made up world. And even from a, a corporate perspective, uh, Tanya was, was bringing up examples around how different organizations are encouraging different behaviors by using elements of gamification. So whether you are a willing participant or not, <laughs> I think it's fair to say everyone is a gamer of some sort. So we're all a gamer. Sorry, Tanya. I mean, if we take a look at like the little red dot notification on your phone, that in itself is a form of gamification to get you to, you know, execute a specific task to open whatever the thing is. That's gamification. That's driving you to a behavior. And there are so many different elements of that in our day to day lives that most people aren't really thinking about, which actually makes everybody a gamer in some way or form. So if we if we roll it back a little bit then, um, so w what is the history of video games? How have we got to, to <laughs> where we are today? When we talk about um, the origin of gaming, I mean, a lot of the origin of gaming really came from good old fashioned pen and paper, you know, D&D um, and Dungeons and Dragons um, gaming. Um, and the idea, for example, that um, we started out with IRC or in real chat, um, which was, you know, the very first origins of um, chatting on the internet. And you would have a chat room, but then you could describe what that chat room would look like. So, you know, I'm in a house with a chair and, you know, a sofa, for example. And then you would have another chat room that somebody could go into and you say, now I'm in the hallway of that house, etc., and so forth. And so people would build in, in blocks, if you like, these rooms and connect all these rooms in different ways to create an experience. And there you go, that's one of the first examples of, you know, very basic level gaming. And that wasn't the idea of IRC, right? No. IRC was a chat room, but people used the construct yes. and the platform to create a gaming structure. In indeed, and, and created things called MUDs, um, multi-user domains, for example. Um, and that was, you know, really a collection of different um, text-based rooms that people could go and have a little experience. And, you know, then you have that changed from, you know, a text-based experience into a visual experience where you have, you know, really basic, you know, 8-bit games, you know, you go back Pixel to... Pixel art style. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Commodore 64s and, you know, Amstrads and, and things like that. And 
you know, you're talking about very blocky games like, you know, Pac-Man, arcade games, you know. These are the ones you um, were playing, Absolutely, Louise. yeah, Pac-Man was a particular favourite. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, so you, you have those basic game functions that then evolved, you know, and you have more and more sophisticated uh, artistic rendering, but then you also have more and more sophisticated artificial intelligence behind this, um, you know, experience, the user engines creating experiences um, that are both visual but, but also have a bit more complexity behind them. And it's got to the point, right, where these, these really rich visual 3D worlds are so realistic now mm -hmm. that some people are having difficulty determining whether it was shot as a movie mm -hmm. or whether it was a completely computer-generated game environment. Indeed. I mean, look at, uh, for example, um, the Fast and the Furious, uh, the um, Fast and Furious 7. Um, Paul Walker, when he died, they were left with a, you know, a situation of do we want to cut his character out from the movie or do we want to complete the movie with him in it? Well, the only way to do that is with digital enhancement. And they used a lot of gaming engines in order to do that, the Unreal Engine, um, to create those images. Um, so gaming, you know, it, it is used in many different, you know, different uh, sectors um, to to create, as you say, lifelike experiences. And we started off talking about video games, and now we're talking about movies, but it's all kind of intertwined at the yeah, end of well the day, I, isn't I it? I think this is a perfect point to actually ask about that segue, what that overlap between video games, the gaming industry, and other entertainment industries looks like. So you've already touched there on how that technology is crossing over. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, my perception from the outside is that perhaps you know, the, the gaming industry is seen as the, the poor relative of um, the film industry. Is that fair to say? <laughs> not at all, <laughs> not at all. If anything, the games industry is significantly larger than the movie industry. And it's only because of popular culture perception that gaming is for geeks and gaming is for behind closed doors that people don't really understand that from a financial perspective, the games industry actually makes more money than the movie industry, and I believe that Jeremy has the figures to... I have the perfect example. <laughs> <laughs> when I was doing research for my book, Reality Check, I found out that the highest grossing film in the last decade was Avengers Endgame. And this was released in April 2019. It made $305 million globally in its first two days. But by comparison, Grand Theft Auto V, a video game, that was released almost six years prior in September 2013, made more than twice that, so $800 million, in half the time, a single day. So the, the video gaming industry really uh, sort of towers above the movie industry and the music industry, despite what perceptions people may have. So f asking the both of you, with your visibility of the gaming industry, why do you think that perception persists? As I say, with the movie industry, it's all about the actors, the talent, um, and that profile of, of celebrity. Um, you don't really get that within the games industry. So you don't have a specific actor, for example, who will play um, the, the character in a game franchise consistently. Um, you'll have different voice actors and different physical actors who will play at, at different aspects and elements, but you don't hang your hat on that talent. Whereas with the movie, you hang the hat on, on the, the celebrity power of the individual star. So touching on that financial aspect then of, of gaming and how much the industry is worth, one aspect that I would very much like to ask you both about um, is around that professionalisation 
of gaming. Um, I think, as I said, it, it, it isn't a, an industry I'm hugely familiar with, but I've, I've heard that there are, for example, football clubs in the UK that are hiring, hiring their own team of esports professionals. Um, so how has that particular aspect come about? I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible how far this has come from the perceptions of video gamers back in perhaps the, the 90s, which was these, uh, <laughs> the basement dwellers, I suppose, uh, <laughs> who would just stay there and playing their video games on their screens alone. Uh, now it's become more accepted. It's become a, a more mainstream, as you were saying. We've got football teams that are actually hiring professional gamers to represent them uh, in, in online tournaments. The tournaments themselves are worth, you know, or not worth, but the prizes they're being given out are, are, are in the millions now. Yeah. And it is a legitimate, I think it's legitimate, I don't know what you think, Tanya, but it's legitimate to say that you can become a professional gamer now. You know, the money is, is there if you want to pursue it. It is a career, it. and actually universities, especially in the US, now have courses where you can graduate to become a professional gamer. And professional gaming isn't just about sitting um, behind a console and playing a game in front of an audience. It is a full-time profession. They will take these individuals, they will put them in a house where they will live and they will train with these other people. They will have a full training program that includes physical activity and exercise as well. So they are, tra they are treated like a professional athlete and they are expected to perform in the same ways that a professional athlete would. And that's reflected in the way that, that these individual players enter an arena when they go to an esports tournament uh, event. Um, ESL, for example, uh, Cologne or Katowice, for example, you could easily be looking at an audience anywhere between 30,000 to 60,000 in the audience. You know, you're talking arena events. And these players, you know, they enter the, the arena and they, it's literally like watching a boxing match or, you know, a, a football game and seeing these players enter the the fandom that they have is easily equal to any live event. And this is a big business at the end of the day because mm -hmm. these players are actually adding value to the world through the, their, their highest level of performance on, this, on these video games. You know, people, as you're saying, Tanya, are coming to watch this in their droves and this is growing mm -hmm. as, a, as a form of entertainment and sport. Um, and traditional sports are actually trying to to reinvent themselves as a result because they're seeing a lot of um, a lot of loss of uh, new people coming into traditional sports because their attention is being taken by esports because that's they're just engaging the audiences in such a new and exciting way. Well, it's not necessarily even a new and exciting way. It's just that they have um, something which traditional um, you know live events doesn't have, and that's community. And this is again, this the same reason why gaming is so much more successful than movies is you create an audience, you create a community that sustains throughout the, the length of the franchise. And you know, with movies, it tends to be you have an individual movie, you have an individual audience for that movie, and that audience does not travel to another movie that's unrelated. Um, the only time you ever get uh, you know, a continuation of that is when it's a fandom and it's uh, a franchise like Star Wars, for example, or Marvel, where you, you will have that loyalty. But with gaming, you get that kind of loyalty every single time. So is that a trend that you're expecting to see continue, more of a crossover between different platforms, between 
video gaming and other types of entertainment that are seeking to, to capitalise on this on this kind of trend. Absolutely, because you're you're looking at uh, industries that are beginning to have issues with, uh, for example, live performance. You know, you have something like COVID comes along, and suddenly you can't have a concert anymore. You can't have you know a, a, a live gig, um, a live event because the audience can't physically be there. Yeah. Um, with esports, it's not a necessity to have the event be live because you can do this at home. Discord, you know, digital platforms, f uh, you know, that's their natural habitat. It's the expectation will be that they will do this offline, so to speak. And, and a lot of our listeners may scoff at the term esports, thinking <laughs> that people sitting at a computer playing video games justifies uh, the term sport. But it is absolutely a highly competitive um, environment and activity. And uh, it is, in my opinion, worthy of, of the name esports. But if people are thinking there needs to be physical activity attached to it, well, if we think about the future of where this is going and the the combination of virtual reality technology, then all of a sudden we have a very exciting world in which people will not only have to perform at the highest level in a video game, mm -hmm. but they will actually have to perform physically, physically. as well. Mm -hmm. And that brings, I think, a new meaning to the term the cyber athlete. Well, <laughs> well we already see examples of this with virtual reality um, esports and you know seeing the physicality of how they have to play that game you know in a virtual environment that they, they're physically running around jumping about you know ducking and diving that there is a physicality there that makes them just as much an athlete as, as another person yeah. but again if you really want to define this and say you know is esports really something that that could be defined as a sport well you know this is something that's going to be in the olympic games it's it's now a, a you know a recognized category so you know, yes. and, I, and I think yeah. you were mentioning yeah. that uh, eSports itself was being trialed at the, the Commonwealth Games as yeah. well. So, yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing to see how, how widespread it's becoming. And no, no doubt growth is going to continue. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about then that, that crossover, what does that look like when we're thinking about real world applications? So how does some of this innovation and kind of gaming technology cross over into real world examples? Um, Jeremy, from the business perspective, what have you what have you seen? So apart from the gamification concepts that we discussed and we know are, are mainstream and everywhere in the world right now, on a more fringe note, um, in, in the division that I work in, virtual reality and augmented reality, these are part of the, the realm of metaverse technologies, there is some very exciting stuff that can be done with this tech. So we're using it to allow people to collaborate remotely from different parts of the world so they can come together in a digital environment and feel like they're in the same place and workshop and solve, solve problems, whiteboard and so on. We're also using it from a training perspective, so to help people uh, develop soft skills and practice those in a very convenient and scalable way. And there, is, there are also so many different opportunities to enhance the operations of business by providing a powerful way to create um, a remote assistance platform and uh, you know that's stuff that we're exploring right now in a myriad of ways. I think Tanya you've also got a, you've seen a number of examples of how this yeah, technology is being used as absolutely. well. Absolutely I mean if you're talking about virtual reality and gamification technologies or game technologies that are being utilized uh, a great example of this is medical realities. You know if we take a look at how traditionally surgeons are trained uh, part of the training is to stand in the operating theatre in the back of the room by the wall um, watching and talking to the surgeon as they're performing the operation. Now through um, 360 uh, uh, 
monitor are cameras being placed above the patient and with the surgeon wearing uh, virtual reality um, technology, they're able to transmit what's happening with that operation and all of the, the students. So instead of only maybe six people being able to fit into that operating theatre, suddenly you have an audience of maybe 300 students who are able to get a front row view of what's happening and be able to speak to the surgeon in real time to ask questions, to get clarification, to understand what's going on it reinvents the way that training for surgeons is taking place. Um, other applications as well, I mean, you know, virtual reality has been around for an awfully long time. You know, people think that it's quite a new thing in the last five, maybe 10 years. But in fact, it's been around for at least 20, 30 years. And uh, it's been around so long that the uh, Ministry of Defense and, and the defense industries have their own terminology for it. They call it synthetic worlds. And in synthetic world training, they're utilizing game technology as well as virtual reality technology to create, for example, the drone technology that we see nowadays, um, which is saving lives. It's allowing uh, you know, personnel to not go into the theater of war and not put their lives at risk, being able to do things at a remote distance with accurate technologies that are at the, the base of them. I mean, they're using a game joystick. They're using, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, you know, uh, c game controllers in order yeah. to do that. Now, if I might ask you about the, f the flip side of the coin here. So, Jeremy, one of the things that, that you touched on briefly earlier was around that perception of gamers sort of being basement dwellers. And maybe there's a common perception as well that it's quite a male-dominated area. So, Tanya, I would mm. love to get your opinion on whether that perception actually is the reality of, of gaming and what that looks like. Well, the reality is, is that there's always been women in the games industry. They may not always have been uh, overly prolific or, or, you know, perceived by others from the outside looking in. But there's always been women in the, in the industry. And in fact, if anything, the, the part of the problem was is that people didn't want to see women in the industry. And that's where we get issues like Gamergate, for example. And Gamergate wouldn't have even happened if it weren't for the fact that there were women at very high levels within this industry. People like Brianna Wu and Zoe Quinn. You know, these women doing, you know, excellent things within the games industry, you know, holding the, their own uh, in senior level positions, running their own studios, running their own development companies. And it was because people, when I say people, I mean certain communities, didn't want to see that those, those women being successful in an industry that created Gamergate, which was essentially a movement to suppress women and feminism from being part of the games industry. And then on, on the flip side as well, it's not only the women in the industry that are misperceived, mm -hmm. but also the women who are the end users, the, the gamers themselves. Yeah. There's a misunderstanding that it's, it's all men playing video games exactly. at the same time, is it? When in fact, it's at least 51% of the audience is female. And depending on which console you use, that, that percentage goes up. And in fact, there are more mobile gamers um, that are women than, than men. I was just going to say, actually, even from uh, yeah. many of us have probably played Pokemon Go at some point or another. Mm -hmm. But even for those people playing Pokemon Go who visited a business while playing the game because they could be tracked, 84% mm -hmm. um, of those were women. Exactly. So the vast majority of Pokemon Go players mm -hmm. are women. Same with Candy Crush Saga, for example, or, you know... Uh, any of those type of mobile phone games, you know, the average commuter <laughs> is somebody who's playing a game on their way to work. That's definitely me. <laughs> I definitely fall in that category. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I suppose some of the other factors that have, have kind of fed into to these difficulties that women are facing, I, I, one that comes to mind is around that anonymity that's afforded amongst, obviously more broadly, social media and online activity, but particularly within gaming, is, is that an issue? I think that, that whenever you have anonymity as a shield, there's always going to be an issue. And we see that in, in gaming um, with women um, players getting abuse from male players when they're on uh, you know, a, a, an audio feed and they can be heard. Um, and with female characters being you know, um, targeted. And unfortunately, we see that even in virtual reality um, where female um, users are targeted by other users. And that's why um, certain companies created uh, ways for players to not be able to invade uh, the, the personal space of another player. And if they were doing things that were um, considered as, you know, offensive or rude, um, that they could be blocked and n not seen, essentially, by others. Um, but they, the only reason they had to create those safety protocols was because of the abuse that was happening. And that abuse yeah. happens because there is a cloak of anonymity that happens when you're online in much the same way as with social media. You know, you have these people who want to be, you know, uh, abusive, uh, troll-type behaviours towards others, you know. Um, they don't like sexual justice warriors or, you know, whatever the thing is that they don't like. And um, in a way, these, these software safeguards, they, they empower people because they give them the ability that perhaps they wouldn't have in the real world to be able to block someone, move them away, get rid of them. Um, so it, it can be quite a powerful tool, you know, using these uh, or communicating and collaborating in these video game environments. So gaming is certainly part of that wider discussion around online safety and digital harms. But if we think about the future of the gaming industry and video games, um, what's driving the direction of the industry at the moment? Jeremy, you know, you've already touched on Metaverse, for example. What do you see happening in the industry in the next kind of three or four years? So the concept of the Metaverse is a really interesting one. And, and to be honest, the, the ideal of a Metaverse is not yet here, but the underlying idea of creating an environment in which people can, a 3D world in which you can explore, interact, be represented by a digital avatar. That concept has been around for ages um, and it goes back, it goes back a long way. The reason why it's becoming really popular now is because we're starting to see integrations with other technologies as well. So a convergence of, of blockchain tech and, and within blockchain NFTs that can be sold in those environments. So you start to see, it starts to get really exciting when you've got these very rich worlds which actually have their own parallel economies at the same time as well. So I'm very excited to see that grow and build. Mm. I mean, in terms of economies, I mean, we've been seeing, uh, you know, meta economies for a long time, you know, Second Life, for example. Um, and, and even when you look at things like Minecraft, you know, there are real life economies related to these things where a bit of you know code is is worth you know a lot of money to certain people and when we look at how that can be evolved in the future i think we're going to see more and more opportunities to integrate across multiple platforms multiple technologies into some more of a unified experience and a unified identity when we find that unified identity which metaverse maybe the first beginnings of something, I hate to say it, um, but something that everybody is using, 
And if we can begin to unify that experience and that identity, then we begin to look at uh, an economy that has much more value and m can be much more influential in the real world. So just before we wrap up, um, Tanya, Jeremy, do you have any recommendations for further reading that our listeners could do if they want to find out a bit more on this topic? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not one to blow my own trumpet, but if you have an interest in virtual reality as a gaming technology and how it can influence business, then do check out Reality Check, how immersive technologies can transform your business. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me personally, my, uh, my website with all my social media details is jeremydaltonxr.com. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so I will just say thank you both so much for joining me on this podcast today. Um, I think that we've covered a huge amount of ground, but I think my takeaway is that I am a gamer. We, that is That has been decided. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe as we hurtle towards the end of the alphabet. And you can join us for our next episode, which will be W for Web 3.0.